You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I used to think I was an extrovert, but I was just afraid of being alone. Coming off of my Alexa Pro, I can't text to talk on the phone. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I really wanna, I wanna, I wanna go home. At a party trying to talk to you, but the music is way too loud. Don't do anything, I don't know why 
tuned into Queering the Art on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris. First off, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded. Colonialism is ongoing. And I'd like to pay respects to all First Nation listeners, elders as well. And yeah, Acknowledgement of the staunch resistance that's ongoing as well. So yeah, I'm Iris and this is my last show of the year, which is interesting. It feels like a bit depressing end of the year though. And the songs you heard before was June Jones' Extrovert featuring Alice Sky, followed by Everything is Great by Alice Sky, two of my faves though. So that's not depressing, but they're very good at making sad songs as well, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why they're two of my fave musicians. For today's show, I'm going to be playing a segment I produced for Disability Day 2022. Shout out to Pauline Vertuna and 3CR, who put together the amazing program, Rest is Survival, that you can check out at 3cr.org.au, Disability Day 2022. So I made a segment around disabling employment services and beyond. So stay tuned for that. On 3CR, ready for radio, 855am. The sun is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshade Wines. Just $20 per bottle, or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter.
Welcome to Services Australia. You have called the Centrelink Employment Services Line. We are currently experiencing longer than usual wait times. We are working as quickly as possible to process all claims. The agency is continually working to protect your account security. That's the dulcet tones of Centrelink. I'm tired of hearing them. Maybe you are too. I'm Iris Lee, and you're listening to 2022 Disability Day Resters Survival Broadcast on 3CR Community Radio. I'm going to unravel the absurdity of the Disability Employment Services, also called DES. I produced this program as a white settler on the stolen lands of the Bunurong and Wandaroo peoples. The fight against punitive systems is the fight against the settler colony. Now, what is DES? After decades of cuts to Social Security, a concession to the social struggles of the 70s, just under 300,000 disabled people in Australia, after some medical certification, end up on a stream of the paltry $47 a day job seeker payment called DES. The scheme's propaganda promises personalised support and means participants don't get forced onto Work the Doll program. DES is lucrative, with the state granting $1.3 billion for private DES providers to compete with each other for disabled clients. In my experience and the experience of many others, DES works against the needs of disabled people to care for each other and rest, and to even assist them find work. The one-year job outcome access rate is a measly 1%. We hear from Catherine and Yale about their experiences in the DES program. We explore how the DES program is itself disabling rather than supportive. Disabling employment services is a more real name. Finally, we look to solidarity and dreaming beyond DES. First, we hear introductions from Catherine Kane, an advocate for raising job seeker. Hello everyone, my name's Catherine and I'm really happy to be here today. Thanks heaps for joining us. So first up, what was it like being on DES as someone also who couldn't work? All right, so I tiny bit of background. I have a chronic illness that I think that the simplest way to describe it is my body doesn't make energy properly. Now that I am really nice and stable, I'm able to leave the house twice a week with a support worker for maybe an hour or so. So imagine that this is before that, and I'm not on the disability pension, so I don't have money. I don't have resources. I don't have support workers. I am trying to do everything myself. I'm trying to stay alive myself, feed myself, keep myself clean, all of that basic stuff. And on top of that, I have this hoop to jump through where once a fortnight, I have to drive 20 minutes into town to go and sit in a room for 10 minutes while a guy ticks a box and says, yeah, we've got nothing for you. See you in another fortnight. So this incredibly limited capacity to do anything and I have to spend a huge chunk of it on make work that does nothing to make my life better except ensure that I don't get my very small payment taken away. It was dire. And of course, I kept asking, can we do this via the phone? That would be infinitely easier for me. It would save me on this petrol that I can't afford. It would save me this energy that I don't have. Save me staying a day in bed after I do this. And they were like, no, you can't. You can't do this via the phone. You have to come in. Yeah, just that total lack of regard for your needs there and just a waste of all these resources going into this system. For no benefit. No benefit whatsoever. Not for them, not for me, not for anyone except a a little tick box somewhere that said, yes, Catherine jumped through that hoop. That was the entire output. Like, I had a couple of decent individual case managers or whatever they're called nowadays over that time. I had a couple of decent ones. And they were like, no, it's clear. Like, you can't work. We get that. There aren't that many jobs that will allow you to work for 20 minutes and then take a three-hour nap. Understood. A couple of them would try and they'd find like, oh, I found a thing about writing articles. It's only 15 hours a week. And I'd be like, (laughs) no, but thanks for trying. An attempt was made. But, yeah, the fundamental structure of the system was like so misaligned with what I needed and what my situation was 
that it was never going to work, ever. And there is no way to to recognise that or to make a change. So frustrating. I guess we're at this stage that the government is talking about more and more reforms of this system that seems to be designed in in ways that doesn't work. And if the outcome is what is intended by design, it says a lot about what the government's doing if this is their intention of what to do with disabled people on the DES. There's also a linkage between the DES and the National Disability Insurance Agency. And at the start of November, the ALP government announced a pilot program connecting NDIS participants with the DES for interested disabled people on NDIS. I'm wondering if you could speak about linkages between the NDIS and the DES. They sound like they should have perfectly aligned goals. Hypothetically, they have perfectly aligned goals. Like the NDIS and the NDIA are designed to support disabled Australians to live their lives, to do all of the things that everybody else wants to do, which includes employment, if that is a thing that they are capable of doing, under circumstances that make it possible for them, whether that includes workplace accommodations or whether that includes more flexibility than a number of employees are usually willing to offer. And the DES, hypothetically, (laughs) has the same sort of thing, but within the narrow ambit of employment like helping disabled people with the resources, the connections, getting all the things they need to be able to be employed. If the DES actually did that, linkages with the the NDIS would be possibly slightly redundant, but they would be perfectly aligned and everything would be fine. Like You can talk to the NDIS about getting some work accommodations that help you work, or you could talk to the DES about getting the accommodations that could help you to work. That's not the reality. The NDIS is, for its flaws, which exist still, has the stated goal and it is mostly aligned with the goal of helping disabled Australians live their lives, a normal life in the community. The DES, so far as I understand it, I don't even, I cannot even beautifully articulate what their actual goal is other than making themselves some money. Because if their stated goal was to help disabled Australians enter the workforce and to get long-term employment, none of the structures and some of the incentives, but none of the structures of the DES are actually set up for that. Like they don't actually do the thing. One of the things that's great about the NDS when it's working correctly is there's this process where they find out what you need. Congratulations, you're on the NDIS. And now we have this long process about what are the areas of your life that you need help with? What are the resources that you need? Do you need like mobility aids? Do you need this? Do you need that? What supports do you need? The DES has none of that, so far as I'm aware. (laughs) So I certainly didn't. And I've never spoken to anyone where their first interview with the DES is like, so tell me what your access needs are. Tell me what you need to become employed part-time, full-time, whatever works for you. There's, it's, welcome to the DES, sit down, here are 20 checklists, at least six of which are completely irrelevant to you. Here's a bunch of forms where we're just going to tick a bunch of boxes. See you in a fortnight. There's no linkage saying, here are the resources you need, here are how we're going to get the resources, this is what our funding is for, this is what we're for, to help connect you to whatever it is you need. That process seems fundamentally missing slash broken slash working as designed where none of that happens. Yeah, so a lot of like pillaring and scepticism of that announcement. What's the intentions here, especially because we know in recent decades, like moving more and more disabled people onto JobSeeker has been the main intention of the government as a sort of like austerity measure and making it more and more difficult to get onto the disability support pension. Yeah, it took me two and a half years of legal fighting for me to finally succeed at it. Mm, That's such a long time-consuming battle. And energy-consuming, yeah, absolutely. It It was devastating, but... Yeah, facing the idea of the rest of my life on job seeker was just like, well, that's not life. I've seen the estimates that it, the current estimate is that there's more than 400,000 
people who should be on the DSP but are on Job Seeker instead. Yeah, huge numbers of disabled people there, abandoned by the state in that way. And yeah, so picking up the overall theme of today's broadcast, Disability Day, which is Rest is Survival, what do you wish Des was? I wish it was a disability-specific version of what the NDIS is supposed to be. Like, if you are capable of working and you... Like, disabled people are people, and a lot of us want to work. I missed working. I enjoyed working. And if they miraculously came up with a set of circumstances that allowed me to do so, heck yeah, I would. Everyone wants to do something that's meaningful to them. Everybody wants to contribute. Everybody wants to do something, whether that's traditional work or volunteering or whatever. Everybody wants to matter. I'm not going to start doing inspiration porn. I'm really not. But uh, (laughs) disabled people have a lot of strength and a lot of capability that actually is derived sometimes from being disabled. Like we've been resilient for a very long time. We've learned what is and is not important in our lives. Our values are often really strong because if you have to give up stuff, you give up the stuff that isn't important. So as a result, if you make the right accommodations, disabled people in your workplace cannot just be a, I guess they'll do because we couldn't find anybody who wasn't disabled, but they can be absolute superstars in your workplace. So... Along with my energy limitations comes a good deal of brain fog of when I get tired, I start losing words and start getting very incoherent. So before I got sick, I was probably more of a waffler than I am now. And since, more and more since being ill, I've my communication has gotten more succinct, more powerful, more accessible, less self-involved. Like all of those things where you're raised to be like, oh, you're the smart kid. Smart kids are the worst communicators. <laughs> smart kids who have had to go through the process I've gone through become much better communicators. And I'm just picking one example out of 60 zillion that is a consequence of my disability. I can go on a radio show and hopefully make good sense to a bunch of people who are listening to me in ways that I don't think I could have done beforehand. And so that's just one example out of 60 zillion of the ways in which disabled people are not just something you have to put up with in your workplace, but can actually be amazing in your workplace if they get the accommodations they need. And that's what the DES should be, a resource centre of everything from, okay, you need an adjustable desk. We'll make sure that your workplace has an adjustable desk. Or Oh, you've got these lighting problems. Okay, here's how to manage those. And here's worksheets, here's resources, here's some funding so that we can get you the shoes you need so that you can stand all day. Or whatever it is. The same way the NDIS is designed to be all like, yeah, you can go out in the community if you have the walker that you need to maintain your mobility. So let's get you the walker so that you can go out into the community. What do you need to make that happen? Let's make that happen. You just heard from Catherine Kane. Raise the Rate Advocate. You're listening to 3CR Queering the Year, and we're hearing a rebroadcast of Disabling Employment Services and Beyond that I produced as part of 2022 Disability Day Rest is Survival. We're examining the deep problems of disability employment services, or DES, which really disrupts our rest. Next up, we hear introductions from Yale, who I invited on because of her incisive way of analysing systems. Hi, my name's Hannah or Yael. I've been navigating the job service provider system and disability deployment services for about eight years and four years respectively, and have had a wide range of experiences through different organisations on the very bottom end of the scale and some organizations that like while the system is still inherently flawed are trying their best. It is a mixed bag in my experience as well. In talking more about that, like the purported function of disability employment services or DES is to help sick and disabled people find work. 
Yeah, only that's only happens 1% of people and there's $1.3 billion that go into it. That's around $4,300 per person. It goes to these private DES providers. What has your experiences like been telling you around what's the f- actual function of the DES? They pay lip service first and foremost to their what they believe their stated function is under the government jurisdiction. Primarily, their main role is to police people who are on a welfare payment and to make sure they're engaging with a system. It doesn't matter what the system is, but just engaging with some kind of representation of a government body to make sure that they're meeting whatever arbitrary check marks they have for their given situation. That's their primary role, but they don't like to acknowledge that part. They believe that they're there to help you get back to work or get a job in the first place. But in my experience, that's usually some of the last things that they actually want to do based on the ways that their income works. What's it been like in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic? Obviously, there was a the time when you didn't have to talk to them. That was like a brief six months time. My experience was like the providers wanted you to be back in person and wouldn't wear a mask in a small office. But... Mixed bag as well. Some providers are accommodating, but it's like you have to do all this effort moving around. So I was with a disability employment service provider called Expression Employment before the start of the pandemic and during the start of it. But after our mutual obligations period of not having to interact with the system, the provider shut down the service because it was facilitating LGBT disabled people in that sector. And they lost the contract that they had for that service. So I was referred to Wise Employment. And initially, after the the little break, they sent some demanding text messages to me, demanding that I, like, without even having met me or talked to me, that I come into their office for interviews and intake process, in spite of them not knowing anything about who I am or the state of my health or whether that would be possible, which was like very rude and made me pretty upset and pretty stressed out for a while and managed to make it clear to them that there was no circumstance in which I would be willing to do that and that I would be happy to allow them to work out some accommodations that were necessary if they wanted me to engage in their programs. So I primarily have phone calls or video appointments. Yeah, I had... A similar trajectory in that I was with Expression and they shut down and I was referred to WISE, but they didn't get me onto the LGBTI WISE stream. So I got referred to these other WISE people and then they were pushing all this stuff. Didn't really understand like my health conditions. And then they, and then one day they like asked me about, are you transgender or something? As if it had something to do with like me being sick. It was really... It was just like a complete mess and eventually they were like, oh, we should refer you to the LGBT ones. But I think like my overall understanding of the system, it's like a system critique. It doesn't matter like how nice they are. They have to perform a role. They have to keep their job. Yeah, 100%. Like you could have an absolute sweetheart for someone who's the supporting person for you, but at the end of the day, they're still like a cog in an oppressive machine. There's useful things that they can do for you if you know the right questions to ask, but they're incentivized to kind of provide you with the very least, which is not a support network. It's like you are the product here. You're not someone receiving support or care. Yeah, I think it like forecloses the possibilities. It's like once on wait lists for some mental health service that's ongoing I get finally get around to it don't get on with the person need to request another one and I'm on the wait list for another year and yet the state puts money into these people that talk to you every few weeks it's like pretty clear like what the state cares about is punitive stuff that's reflected by the nature of who some of these organizations are like I haven't seen max employment as a disability and service provider but I have seen them as a job service provider and their parent company is Maximus Solutions which they run in Australia, various neoliberal projects from prisoner transport to patient care, 
in the United States, they are responsible for prisons and the same in the UK amongst a multitude of outsourced government programs. And interestingly, max employment is like the place where I experience the most transphobia, the most anti-Semitic, just filth and vileness. It's unsurprising to find out that organizations like this are responsible for the alienation and anxiety of people from all walks of life, let alone as an organization being directly linked to deaths in custody. The people that go for these jobs and work in these industries have a lot of blood on their hands, and they don't take too kindly to it when you try and point that out. The theme of this year's Disability Day broadcast is Rest is Survival, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how the punity of logic of the DES program and the logic around back to normal in the COVID-19 pandemic prevents rest as survival. First and foremost, on an individual level, myself and like a lot of other people who are experiencing chronic health situations, breakdown of medical support systems and just other complications due to the nature of disability, may or may not already be in a position like me where we're visiting a specialist or a GP multiple times a week. And sometimes those appointments re- require like multiple hours on public transport to get to areas where you can afford to see someone, sometimes taking entire days from us in the search for recovery, and, and that takes rest. And then you throw in the mutual obligation requirement for people to have to do the same thing to travel to an office, to jump through hoops, to re- keep, continue to receive social payment just increases the exhaustion and exacerbates our conditions and increases stress and is the opposite of helping shield marginalized and vulnerable people the whole generally considered approach to surviving this pandemic but the capitalist and institutional push to bring covid normal it further pushes people like me out of public life even at the margins and the fringes where you think people might be looking after each other a little bit better, that still felt just as much. And then you throw in also that people who don't have disabilities are catching a virus that has the potential to cause them a a lifelong series of health complications. And then also cutting the amount of time that they have to recover to force them back into institutions because they need to keep their job or they need to keep money and the government's not willing to support people, thus increasing the spread by not providing forms of support that are necessary in order for people to be able to isolate and still look after their communities. It's not really in line with that at all. It's about trying to get back to as much exploitation as possible while cutting as much out of the social spending budget as they possibly can. Because at the end of the day, it's about a budget sheet, not people's lives. Yeah, 100%. There's been like decades of cuts to social security, and that's not to like romanticize things in the 70s when they were a little less punitive and weren't as small poverty payments. But there is this progress narrative, and I'm particularly thinking about like respectability politics in trans circles that disassociates from illness, disability, or madness, and how that throws trans people who are disabled and trans under the bus. And I'm also thinking about the disability rights movement and what a mainstream rhetoric around choice and work that the state can easily co-opt to cut welfare, to create like these profitable DES provider markets and extract more and more labor from disabled people. This progress narrative is in so many different spaces and in the, in the disability sector of the employment service providers, the people who work for them will do the very bare minimum while newspapers print that $1.3 billion is being spent on people who are a waste of space. So like we have in the media narratives that say that our lives are meaningless, a burden to everyone around us. And then we're forced to navigate these institutions that frame themselves as helping provide us with care, but what they're really providing us is more stress, a tangible and implicit threat of violence if we aren't able to cooperate in the ways that they decide that we are capable of. Meanwhile, these are people that don't have 
like medical backgrounds and don't understand the conditions that a lot of us are living in. And the general public misguided at every turn about what the true nature of these institutions is like. And you're always going to have tokenistic advocacy groups that are used by the state to dismantle grassroots movements, whether that's in LGBT activists and politics, and then having institutions that the state can provide funding to to make it seem like they're doing something for us, when in reality, these institutions and organizations don't represent the vast majority of people in our communities. So like the myth of eternal progress is just like this white supremacist idea that we live at the end of history and things are better now than they've ever been because they have to be, right? It's part of the like capitalist fantasy about Western imperialism and cultures of subjugation that you don't have anything to complain about. Things are better than they've ever been. It's a silencing tactic. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any further thoughts on like where to from here and like resistance and solidarity against these systems? It's a big question. Yeah. Please wear a mask when you're in a public space. Me and every other immunocompromised person that I know who is happens to take a big step back from any kind of social or public life are sick of begging you to take the mildest of precautions that help prevent more harm happening to people in our communities, not only for ourselves, but also for you. I I can't overstate that enough. Apart from that, like the disability employment service providers can provide you with more than you know. Talk to each other, find out what you've gotten from them. They can buy you more than just some work clothes. They can pay for things that they will try and pretend that they can't pay for. Use that for what it is if you are capable of doing so. But really, these institutions are never going to be our savior. And the only way to provide the meaningful support that each of us need in our lives is stronger grassroots movements of people who are willing to do work to help look after each other. So whether that's through mutual aid groups like the Food Angels who help provide food to a sliver of our community, if there was more people doing things like that, people willing to help people get to and from appointments so they don't have to risk their health through public transport, which is not exactly the safest place to be during a pandemic, and also just righteously inaccessible at the best of times. So just like helping look after each other and understand our needs in like a mutually beneficial way, we can all help each other if we are prepared to. You just heard from Yale. Ending there on the solidarity we need to build a new world from the ashes of disabling employment services. You're listening to Rest is Survival on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, digital and on your community radio app. A special thanks to Pauline Fajuna and 3CR for putting together today. There's lots I haven't touched on properly in this program. The white supremacist state restricts migrants from any social safety net for many years. The social security system particularly punishes First Nations peoples in this settler colony. I invite our settlers on these stolen lands to ask how we can act in solidarity against the border and the colony. In particular, pushing in solidarity with the struggle for land rights, such as supporting land back initiatives, such as one of Kanak. That's W-U-U-R-N of Kanak, K-A-N-A-K, in your search engine. To go out, I'm dreaming a revolutionary future, where Centrelink whole music is but a distant memory that we dance to, punked up, in an accessible party of our dreams, and we get all the rest we need.
Thank you for calling. Goodbye. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach, and I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on twenty years of listening to our mobs on the inside, as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. You're tuned into 3CR Community Radio, Crewing the Air, and you just heard a rebroadcast of Disabling Employment Services and Beyond that I produced as part of the amazing 2022 Disability Day Rest is Survival. Check that out online to get all the content you may have missed from the day. I guess one of the things that came up in that segment is the pandemic and navigating the pandemic. And I did come across an interesting article recently. The... the, the pandemic isn't over and queer people shouldn't be acting like it, published in Extra Magazine. And a quote from the article, The queer community felt fractured long before COVID-19 showed up, but the pandemic has provided a lens through which the divides have been made unflinchingly clear. Much of the rhetoric and actions coming from more privileged individuals within my communities feel opposed to what I thought queerness represented, a refusal to aspire to normalcy. And a quote from further in the article, many from my communities often tout principles of anti-capitalism, feminism and anti-racism as intrinsic to their queer identities. But the imperative to return to normal, in inverted commas, is asking us to return to capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy. And the article goes on to speak about ways to continue to take precautions that don't throw people under the bus and yeah, worth a read. Check that out online. And it was written by Tara Michelle Zinniuk. Yeah, especially as we're coming off the back of another deadly and disabling COVID wave here, it's important to think about community care in these times. Up next is a bracket of songs. First, Ada Flane, Eden on the Park album, Quiet Observation and then Siren Song by Dark Water.
show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Chase you while you were chasing the sun 
You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. That was Siren Song by Dark Water. Before that was Quiet Observation by Edith Lane. So we're coming to the end of the program for you. And I guess another very topical thing that came up, unfortunately, was threats made by neo-Nazis to attack a youth event that featured some drag artists and a drag artist that was previously targeted but targeted by neo-Nazis in late September at Mooney Ponds. And yeah, despite a lot of like anti-fascist queers calling for mobilization to support the event, discussions with Victoria Police Council, minus 18 and a Victorian Pride Centre, um, they decided to cancel the youth event. And yeah, I think that was really pretty terrible precedent. It emboldens these um, neo-Nazis and white supremacists to do that and it really shows I think that queer politics has become very like um yeah it's become very away from like its roots in like self-organization and I guess yeah challenging systems of oppression that yeah in that statement Victoria Police is mentioned first and it's like interesting that they're like given so much advice and they've consulted with them rather than like people on the ground, including one of the drag performers that went to the counter-protest in support of the event, even though it was cancelled on on December 8th. And like they're consulted as if they're the biggest priority when at the Mooney Ponds thing, they Victoria Police also told that drag artist not to perform. They wouldn't, they didn't really do anything other than form a line where the neo-Nazis were like disrupting this Mooney Ponds youth event. And really, it really shows we need to like go go to the radical roots of queerness and like self-organize because we can't trust the state who oppress so many people in our community still. Just look at the like the massive amount of people in prison that are locked up by and criminalized by Victoria Police, particularly particularly people that experience um, extreme poverty and, and as a result of capitalism and racism and, and ableism. Yeah, I think it really shows that we need to, in order to combat these attacks from fascists, we need to build a more radical queer politics here in Nam because things at the moment are a bit too sedate, really. And I say that in this time where, like, all these trans rights have been won, but I guess trans people inside prison were thrown in the, under the bus with things like the birth certificate reforms because that bill retained like extreme powers for the state to knock back trans people inside requests for changing their identification. And we know that's particularly felt by criminalized trans women inside. And yeah, this is supposedly like the best liberal capitalism can do where there's massive underemployment, people made surplus by capitalism, nuclear family, Sick and disabled trans people are stuck navigating the intensified hell of the COVID normal in the messed up medical industrial complex, along with pandemic complacency. Trans people of colour are stopped from moving, that many are deported, many are quickly refugees. Refugees are excluded from rights and safety nets by the border regime. Like, surely this isn't all we can dream of, really, and we're going to have reaction, always threatening small gains as well. So, yeah, I think we need to build a more radical politics in this sea of liberalism to borrow a term from a talk I also missed on that day. There's been a Telegram channel set up, anti-fascist alerts NAM as well you can keep in touch with. We also saw recently, even though like the far right is in some ways marginal, they can kill people. We know, we know extreme Islamophobia led to the Christchurch massacre by white supremacists that was homegrown in Australia and over in Aotearoa as well. And like, yeah, we need to be worried about how to organise to stop the rise of the far right. And this came up in recent events with the shooting in Queensland that killed two people and the three shooters were killed as well. And, and all the indications show that they were, they had far right ideologies around white supremacy, around like pandemic denial. So ableism mixed in there and 
And we can't trust the state as well because they're implicated in all sorts of winding back of COVID productions. That has done nothing to build public health. And there was a really good thread by White Rose Society on this. It was pushing back against recently Peter Dutton. He was calling for cracking down on encryption as if we need the state to be spying on us more because they have unlimited power. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, it's pretty concerning times. We got an email from a band we spoke to earlier in the year as well, walking to the grocery store, and they are a four-piece commie all-trans punk band based in Nam, making music for transsexuals, queers, and the working class. So you can check them out, walking to the grocery store on Instagram to see what upcoming gigs they have. And that's all we've got time for on Queering the Air today. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or at queeringthear at gmail.com. Up next is Salam Radio Show. Have you heard it on the news? About this fascist growth thing? Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.